Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mind Matters, where we are working towards counseling the culture. My name is Richard Beatty, the co-host and producer who's always in need of good and wise counsel. The host, the counselor, the author of several books, including my favorite, Think This, Not That, is Rita Schulte, who has a license to counsel and a passion to minister. This week, we will be having a conversation with author, pastor, and counselor John Heyman, who has quite a story to tell. He's written a book about that story titled Agonizing Peace. Rita Schulte, I want to bring you into the conversation. Uh, One of the things that struck me about John Heyman is the integrated three-corner hat he wears, pastor, counselor, and author. A few weeks ago, I had pastor, author, and counselor Otis Ledbetter on this show. Uh, Three-cornered hats that are integrated into one person. Barna, Barna Research has run surveys and polls on where people call for help in any given community, and they found that a high percentage of churchgoers and non-churchgoers put the local church at the top of their speed dial. I am excited to hear from several people who are on pastoral staff in local churches around the country who wear that three-point hat. Yeah, that is very true. And many of these pastors are finding that psychology and counseling are part of their undergrad and seminary work. I think that really needs to be a requirement, not an add-on, because uh, pastors are the first go-to a lot of times for people who are struggling. Yeah, and as Otis Ledbetter told me, if he runs into a situation where he's not qualified, he refers that person to a colleague who's licensed a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a specialist in what the person needs at any given time. And just to make sure our listeners understand that at RitaSchulte.com, we're working on an audio magazine that will have features, interviews that we have done on the show, profiles and stories with those very psychiatrists and counselors, uh, people that are experts uh, in different areas of, of mental health. Uh, That audio magazine is what I call Renewable Minds. For just $7 a month or $70 for an entire year, it's the start of a network we're building of counselors, clergy, and community. For more information and an invitation to Renewable Minds, join us at counselsculture at gmail.com. Membership is free, and you will get Rita's newsletter and a catalog of audio resources and publications that are designed to renew your mind and heart. Well, Richard, this is a harrowing story that we're about to walk into with a victorious ending, and we are excited to have John Heyman on today. Yeah, Agonizing Peace is a new book by John Heyman, who uh, we introduced in the intro. Yeah, John was born into poverty, trafficked as a child slave overseas, and then adopted as a young boy by a family in America. He's been a pastor, counselor, teacher, and CEO of a nonprofit organization. Welcome to Mind Matters. We're honored (laughs) to have you. I mean, this is not your everyday story. (laughs) Rita, that's an interesting thing. That's I'm not sure who sent that to you. Yes, I worked for one of the largest construction companies in the country for a few years, but that was not my heart. Yes, I made good money at it, uh, selling and renting the large excavators, bulldozers, that kind of equipment. And I loved it. I still love watching them at work. Oh, yeah. That was not we all my do. Part. Yes, mm-hmm. obviously. I went, I went back into the ministry and worked with kids for many, many years, had a church, 
youth pastor uh, of a couple. And my uh, probably the last 20 years, I've been in what we would call marketplace ministry in the nonprofit world, where, you know, these were not faith-based organizations, but obviously I ran them as a faith-based person uh, and trying to honor and glorify the Lord. Well, what a beautiful story of redemption. I can totally relate to that, wanting to redeem and and give out of your passion and your heart for kids, especially what you have gone through. So let's jump into it. Yeah, let's talk about your timeline, John. Uh, In your young life, you were sold into a slave mill. Who sold you? When was that? And where did this happen? Tell us your story. No, thank you. You know, I did write a book called Agonizing Peace after many years not talking about it. My wife finally said, John, you need to tell the story because I had some really deep questions and said, I wonder why my parents didn't fill in some of the gaps. I'm talking about my parents, meaning those that adopted me here in the United States. They were wonderful people. Uh, I'm not going to disparage your name at all. But they passed on too early for me to ask some of the serious questions. So I dug deep. And How old were you? My How that? old were you, John? I'm sorry. How five old were you? Old. Yeah, five years old when I got adopted. Four okay. or five. Uh, all the adoption papers are bogus. Um, the story really is this, or the account is this. It's not a story. Um, I was dropped off at an orphanage. That building is still there in Greece. Cheryl, my wife, and I have returned back to look at it. Not for that purpose. I really don't have an emotional attachment to uh to my ancestors, but I'd love to know if I came from Plato or Aristotle, but, you know, somebody gave me up. Somebody didn't want me. Somebody abandoned me, and they put a, put me in a bread box at one of the two orphanages that are famous in the city of Athens back in the late 50s, and uh, when they put you in that bread box, it's, a, it's like a mail slot that are on a lot of homes, but it's big enough to, to put gallons of milk and loaves of bread in and babies. So that's where I was dropped off. When my wife and I went to visit it, it's now an art gallery. But when we went to the the door, they opened it up to us because my wife said he was born here, which technically I wasn't born there. But an elderly lady came around the door, pulled us in and said, you can look around. Now, Mm -hmm. the God thing was this. There was no art display going on. There were no paintings on the walls. There was no sculptures. So read them. That building looked exactly like it did when I was a kid. And it still sends chills through my body when I oh, say I that bet. to you. So you remembered. You remembered it yeah, when you I saw it. I oh think my I went back and forth to that place as I grew older. But when we were walking up the stairs, my wife and I, the elderly lady caught us, gave me a book, which I have two copies of it now, and showed me a picture and said, this is the doctor. And I said, what doctor? And she said, the doctor that signed your death certificate. And I said, I've never heard this part of my story. And she said, oh, yeah, when you as babies were dumped off here, this person and other doctors would sign your death certificate so that when somebody came back to claim you and said, look, I dropped the baby off here six months ago or a year ago, I'm I'm doing okay. I want the baby back. They would just turn to that person and say, well, we're so sorry, but your baby died. That way you were dead. And if you're dead, they can do anything with you that they want, which apparently I learned is exactly what they did. I don't know if I was sold into slavery, rented into slavery. I'm really not sure. But I clearly remember the abusive experience that I had uh, because the little house that I was in 
that is so indelibly marked in my mind is really close to the Acropolis, that very famous hill in the city of Athens. And at the top of it is the Parthenon. And we children, I wasn't the only one, but I was the only one in that particular house. We children had to go up there and beg. Uh, and if anybody's ever seen the uh, movie Slumdog Millionaire, you, you know exactly the kind of begging we had to do. In Slumdog Millionaire, they they show how they either cut digits, cut fingers off to make the children look poor, or they would smash the knees to make them hobble and look poor because the tourists would more likely give them money. With me. I know it sounds almost funny. With me, I must have been good at raising money back then because I didn't get any of my fingers cut or my knees smashed in. But oh my gosh, John. Oh my gosh, yeah. John. I was there. I was exactly there a few years ago where you're talking wow. about. I remember. Well, yeah, and that's... you know that building. They have beautiful lights up on it. They're still restoring it. It's the building, one of the very few that Hitler did not destroy when he when he conquered uh, Greece, um, which I'm glad for. But Anyhow, he did leave the nation of Greece in poverty. A uh, hundred thousand people, more than a hundred thousand died. And um, again, I don't know who my real parents are, but I'll tell you something, Rita. What I've come to learn are several things. Number one, everybody has a blood family, a family that's their blood lineage. And everybody has, or I hope they have, a love family. Now, it's really cool when the two come together, meaning that the family you were born into is also your love family. And so your blood family and your love family are the same. That was not the case for me and probably not for all of your listeners. My blood family, I don't know if they were evil. All I know is they didn't want me or couldn't take care of me. I'm not sure. But my love family became the Haymans. Now, I had to learn that for a while because understand that every time somebody touched me, physically touched me in Greece, they hurt me. So when I landed in New York City off the plane, my family, the Haymans, my Greek name is Pondelaman Kudinos, but my name you know me as is John Heyman. And the Haymans adopted me and my aunts were there and people I learned to grow up with. But when I got off the plane that day, I didn't want anybody to touch me. Oh, Remember, yeah, because you associated. Yes. So That's I've got exactly a zillion right. questions. I, oh, like, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. So, so you were living with just some people that took you off that breadbasket and they were, uh, were they a family and they were abusive to you? Or do you even remember all of that? Yeah, most, it's interesting. Most people's mem childhood memories are based on their real memories, pictures, and stories that were told. Well, I didn't have pictures and stories. So my memories are of a very small house with a chair on the outside of it, a little short woman in the kitchen, a crib, um, not a cradle, a crib that I was still sleeping in at four and five years old, and a man that was always in the other room, and he was with other people. I don't know what they did for a living. I think they trafficked in children. But he was the one that would throw me out the window, and he was the one that would, would abuse me very, very badly. Yeah. Oh, John, I'm so sorry. Oh, my goodness. How on earth did you escape that? Okay, so there was the abandonment piece, the right. traumatic piece of, you know, abuse, yes. even as a kid, as an adult, as a counselor, you know, a lot of research out there on the body keeping the score. So I'm sure there was a lot of yeah. body stuff for you, like you could just see something and your body would feel, I'm sure, a yes. lot of reactions. How did you yeah. escape this life. I was adopted by, and perhaps uh, you guys know the American Mission to the Greeks. It's now AMG International. Spiros Odiades was the head of it at the time. And my mom volunteered with her, Lois Heyman. Uh, 
And she said, she challenged him and said, aren't we just, um, uh, just perpetuating the inevitable? These children are still going to starve eventually. And he said, well, what do you propose? And she said, adoption. And so he said, you'll be the first. And so she was. She adopted the first two. I was one and a little baby in a basket that was next to me on the airplane. She became my sister. She was not my blood sister, but became my sister here in America. That's how I escaped. So okay, otherwise, so I would have never she, known. How did Mrs. Heyman get involved with these people that were abusing you to even get that thing in motion? Well, she's not the one who got involved with the abusers. Spiros Zodiades was the one that in, intercepted at least 60 to 300 children. I don't know the real number. I'm, I'm actually reconnecting with that organization and his son to find out a little bit more about that part of my story. But I know that, that was, I was the first two. I was one of the first two. Uh, so yes, yeah, Spiros Odiades, it's a very Greek name. He's a Greek scholar of the New Testament, just died a few years ago. He is the one that intercepted um, the, the traffickers over there in Greece. He was eventually arrested for it. Uh, so were the others over there because they thought he was part of the illegal adoptions and he was not. So he was released. But yeah, wow. that's how I got here. So what about the trauma? I mean, you're a little kid. Was that PTSD? I mean, were you you were abused? Obviously, you didn't want yeah. to be touched. That's a very yeah. you know, that's the first red flag. I mean, mm. how did you fare the first few years you know, with your new family? Did you have nightmares, flashbacks, you know, all of that kind of stuff that goes along with the PTSD? Wow. The answer is all of the above, not one of them. First, I would not let, especially my mother, who is very, very huggy, I would not let her hug me for over two years. And I remember it like it was yesterday in Teaneck, New Jersey, in the kitchen, when I finally put my arms straight down on my side, like a like a board, like a two by four and let yep. her actually wrap her arms around me for the very first time. I experienced what it was like to be loved and not hurt when somebody touched me. Nightmares up until I was about 10 or 11. I had nightmares. Can't explain it. I'm sure Sigmund Freud would have a heyday with my nightmares because he loved to uh, talk about dreams up until about 10 or 11 of a water monster. I don't know what the association is with the water, but the water monster would come out of a bathtub in the house in New Jersey, come down and get me or get me out of my bedroom and carry me like I was a child again, right past my mother, my aunt, and my grandmother, who were all knitting on the sofa. And I would scream and say, help me. And he would eventually take me out of the back of the house and beat me up just like I was beat up in Greece. So that lasted from four years old till about 11, another seven years. Yeah. Oh, and then I had educational trauma. I couldn't read. You know, I came over to, to America and my favorite teacher still in my memory is Miss Allers, A-H-L-E-R-S. Um, I wanted to marry her. She was my third grade teacher. And she, taught, she took the time to teach me to read. No one else did. They actually made fun of me. Teachers mm. made fun of me because I couldn't speak the English language real well. Oh, my gosh. How were you yeah. socially? Were you not trusting, obviously, of people? Did you have friends? Because that's another big red flag for. I turned into a socialite. But during those those first number of years, it was my brother, natural born brother to the Haymans, uh, who just was always at my side all the time. And in, in fact, quite frankly, all the way up through high school. And um he was just wonderful to me and would introduce me to his friends. And so socially, I was OK because I had somebody watching out for me. 
Did but you have inside, counseling? I was scared. Oh, no, absolutely. I never went to counseling. Yeah, I never went to counseling. That's interesting. Even as an adult, I never went. I don't know if I self-counseled. You know, I have a master's degree in psychology, so who knows? Maybe that, maybe that, you know, they say that psychologists go into that field to find themselves. And of course, the highest rate of suicide is amongst psychologists because they find themselves, they don't like what they find, and they they kill it. Uh, that didn't happen to me. I was full of love from the Haymans, protected by my brother. I went into it to help other people. That's so powerful. So on that note, you have been involved in suicide prevention. Yeah. I'm not sure if you know my story, but I lost my husband to suicide be 10 mm. years this November. Um, just kind of lost his mind in three months and took his life. So wow. I'm, yeah. And you saw it go down rapidly in three months? Yes. Because I just came from a speech. I'm not joking. Just now, I'm speaking at a health conference, and I came into this room to do to do this interview, and I said, sometimes these things are chronic, they've been going on for a while, and sometimes they're like a car accident. It yeah. hits us, and the trauma happens very, rap- very rapidly. So I am so sorry to hear that. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was insane. He was a dentist, so there's a lot of theories about that. Yeah, um, there is. Yeah, you know, on and on and on, but very, very... Uh, traumatic. Tell us what are some of the ways that you help people that are suicidal? Are you involved in that specifically? Or is this just, you're just generally speaking about suicide? Yes, I am. Both within family and a deep friend. Uh, When a friend of mine who's a little older than me called me from New York State, he was a very, very deep friend when we lived up there and said, John, I have a 38 caliber pointed to my head. What are you going to tell me? And I said, well, I'll use the name Bob. Well, well, I'll tell you something. Um, you're a thief. Now, they didn't teach me in psych- psychology school to say that. I said, you're a thief. He goes, what? And I said, you're a burglar. And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, you think you have the right to take my best friend from me? You have that right? You're stealing from me. I said, you have two beautiful daughters. You are stealing a father from those two beautiful daughters. Put that I think I used a bad word. Yeah. <laughs> Put that damn gun down. Yeah. And yeah. apparently he did because I know him very well. I was about to hear the pulling of the trigger over the phone. And now he comes down every single year for Thanksgiving. We love him. I've always loved him. Uh, so that not only that, I just told about a couple other suicides that I've been involved with in my church when I was a pastor. Uh, and they were very brutal kind of suicides, a lot of abuse going on inside the home um, and things like this. So uh, tr- suicide, depression and suicide, fear, anxiety, you know, be anxious for nothing, God yep. said, is the most disobeyed commandment in the Bible. Be anxious for nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm not there yet. Anyhow, people that live in deep fear, deep anxiety, deep depression are very suicidal often. Sometimes they're cowards and they won't take their own life. So you have suicide by cop or they'll jump in front of a train, things like that. But anyhow, what I tell people is if you have somebody in your family that is suicidal or a a great friend of yours, there's three things you can do. Number one, be there. That's your job description. Two words, be there. Do not avoid them. Be there. Hug them. Tell them you love them. Be there. Second, do not tell them you know what they're going through because you probably don't. And third, and this is a tough one, you have to expect the worst and you have to pray for the best. But you better be prepared for the worst. Jesus said, in this world, expect trouble. 
Uh, and every once in a while, Tony Dungy's son, Toby Mack's son, these are awful experiences to lose a boy. Anyhow, so that, those are the three pieces. The other is, if you yourself are feeling depressed, I would suggest you do three things. And remember, it's the only kind of things I can give in a textbook without getting accused of something and getting sued for giving bad counseling. Right. However, these three things are, are, are pretty powerful. Number one, re- remember the cheerleaders. Number two, remember the basketball. Number three, remember the rearview mirror. These are very visible things that people can do when they're despondent. The cheerleaders is make a list of people that are cheering for your success. That side of the bleachers that love you and want you to win. Stop listening to the other side because that's what has you depressed. So make a list of those people. Put it on your refrigerator door, the most opened and closed door in your house. There's your cheerleader list. Number two, and hopefully God's on that list. Number two, and and by the way, there's a whole lot of things that flow from that. Call them, talk to them, email, text them, uh, stay in communication, not with the negatives, with the positive people in your life. Number two, remember the basketball. You were not created not to bounce back. Like a basketball, when you're pushed down, you bounce back. When you're pushed down harder, you bounce back higher, unless your basketball is depressed, depressed. It doesn't have enough pressure in it, which is almost counterintuitive to what we're being taught about depression. But it's really true that if you blow the basketball up, yeah, you can put too much pressure on. But if you believe that you should not have pressure at all in your life, then and if you don't want pressure in your life, then say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. But that's not the way people really want to live. Not kids, not young adults. They want to live with purpose. Pressure is good in their life. Not too much, but but good. So the cheerleaders, the uh, basketball, and the third is the rearview mirror. Every time you get in your car, look at your rearview mirror and notice the size of it. It's 1 20th the size of your front windshield, meaning I will let awesome. you t- look backwards for one minute out of every 20. And we're going to look forward 19 minutes. Yeah, you can spend a couple minutes on the side view mirror where you compare yourself to other people. He's got more more money. He's got a better car. She's got a better job. Okay, that, that's three minutes. Then look behind, look sideways, and then spend 17 minutes looking forward in your life. That's therapy. That is true therapy. And if people get into that mon- mental muscle memory, the mental muscle memory change in their life, they will pull themselves out of depression. Yeah, I often talk about friends with David Jobes, Tom Joyner, who endorsed my book on suicide. Their models are, are just, I mean, they're two of the best suicidologists in the country. And talking about this idea of suicidal drivers, what what's making you want to see suicide as a viable option to get your needs met? I mean, the, the enemy wraps lies around that all the time. Like, okay, well, yeah, mm. it's true. Suicide will take you out, right? But is that really... Is there another way that we can find work on whatever that will help you meet your needs and get what you want that won't cost you your life? And the drivers, you know, what makes this person want to take their life is what I'm really looking at. Reasons for living, reasons for dying. And if we can work on problem solving some of those things, because those skills go out the window when you're in that space. That's right. Um, So before we get to that space... Right. What I just said at this health conference is make a list of fears. What are you scared of? Yep. Children are only born with two fears. Every other fear you look, you you caught or taught. Um, 
one of the fears that you, I don't care if it's spiders, snakes, heights, jumping out of a plane, whatever it is, flying boats, motorcycles, put those fears down. That's different than caution. Caution is, okay, I have to be really careful when I'm riding my motorcycle, but it's not going to stop me from riding. Fear stops you from doing something. So write down the fears that you have, then write down the things you're peaceful about. Like my book, Agonizing Peace. What are you at peace with? Even if it was a traumatic experience, did you lose a child? But today, you're at peace with it. Not that you want to repeat it. It's just that you're peaceful about it. In all things, I have learned to be content, the Apostle Paul said. So write those things down, then take just one of the things on your fearful list. Don't try to get rid of all of them at once. Just take one and write it over here on the peaceful list. Put both those lists up on the refrigerator. Now you've got three lists. You've got your cheerleader list there. You've got those two lists up there. And they will constantly, you know, somebody asked me there, well, they're just words. And I said, excuse me, if you believe in the Bible, isn't the Bible just words? It's a big book with a whole lot of words, but it is so powerful through the words. So words are incredibly powerful in our healing process. Anyhow, that's what I tell people to do with yeah, the fear list and the peaceful list. That's beautiful. And I think what you're saying, too, is where are you going to set your mind? Because yes. if, you, if you don't set your mind on these positive things, the enemy of your right. soul is certainly going to because his job is to take you out. Right. Period. So yep. we and, and the cool, letters. Yeah. And the cool thing is, is we each have the ability to choose where to set our minds. Right. We really do. Rita, I think it was Carl Jung that said between a stimulus Something that happens to us between a stimulus and a response to that stimulus, there's a choice. Yeah. Yeah. The most You're powerful right. thing God gave us was a choice. We are going to go to uh, another show uh, with John Heyman, and we're going to talk a, a lot about uh, some of the things that we talked about now, but there's so much more to this, this story. And I, uh, John is just. It's just great to hear uh, what your story is and and uh, what agonizing peace is all about. And we have different mm -hmm. types of peace. Uh, we've got effortless peace coming up. We will continue our conversation with John Heyman about his book and story, Agonizing Peace. We will talk about poverty, true peace, surrender, and there's a surprise ending. For more and for a free membership into Renewable Minds and a list of renewable resources from Rita Schulte, visit RitaSchulte.com and send us an email and let us know what you think. You can get that at Rita Schulte, that's S-C-H-U-L-T-E.com. I'm Richard Beatty in Denver, and for Rita Schulte in Virginia, we look forward to seeing you next week. Deception, denial. We hear it, we think it, and we find ourselves in a toxic pool of negative thinking. Everybody out of the pool. Deceptive thoughts take root in the mind, and you've got to change the physical nature of where the brain goes and redirect your thoughts to good. How? By noticing, paying attention. It all starts in your mind. You can buy index cards and write down positive thoughts. Focus on what is good, beautiful, and worthy, and think on these things, not on those things. The brain has a system of checks and balances 
imbalances and reorganizes on what you think. When you name the deceptive thought, you can eliminate it by replacing it in your card file by a better thought. So if I think that I'm not good enough or smart enough to be in the job I'm in, then think of a time you creatively contributed to someone's life. Write it down. That integrates right and left brain. Think of a time you creatively contributed to someone's life. And each time you think that you're not worthy, write down the truth about why you were born for such a time as this. Think this, not that. A renewable resource from Mind Matters. Go to RitaSchulte.com. 